As far as reminders go, the two things that are immediately coming up are uh, the Cochrane baby shower this Saturday, and then uh, let's prepare our hearts all week for a communion service on the 17th as well. Um, and then keep praying for Pastor Ken. Uh, he'll be leaving his flight here in an hour, exactly, uh, assuming there have been no delays. So pray for Pastor Ken that the Lord would grant him safety. It's a long trip. I don't, I've never taken a flight that long before, so I don't even know how, how you'd be able to get up and walk at the end of it. <laughs> uh, and then also, if some of you have been following perhaps the reports of the, of the massive typhoon in the Philippines, um, they're saying the loss of life could be over 10,000. Um, so in, in many ways, it's, it's just as deadly as the tidal waves and, and things that happened um, in that same area of the world a few years ago. So um, let's keep praying for, for that region and that the Lord would, uh, would show mercy and uh, common grace to those who need it and would, this would open doors, even horrible situations like this, for the gospel. The next two weeks, as you can see behind me, we're going to talk about faith or familiarity. That's going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Really, just the few chapters of, of the uh, first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark. If you have one of the Bibles that the ushers handed out, I think that starts at page six ninety nine. We'll be looking at uh, several passages in Mark. And uh, the reason that this study came to me and started weighing on my heart was. Because Noble and I are reading through Mark, you know, bit by bit. He can only handle small doses if there's no visuals. But uh, I read a few months ago that it's very important to read the Bible to your kids for a number of reasons. And so I've been trying to take that to heart and read, you know, not every night, but at times, you know, parts of the Bible to him. I know Brian Kurtz is one that has challenged my heart on that as well. He reads the Bible to his kids, and I appreciate your testimony in that. But um, so that is something, as a side note, that I think is good. And I can see, even at four, some of the pieces making sense for Noble. He asked us the other day at church, can only, only adults believe in Jesus? No, not only adults. And I didn't want to push it, but it was exciting to see, you know, some recognition, some awareness of the gospel, even in his heart. Um, and that's thanks not only to the gospel of Mark, but to the good teachers here as well. Union with Christ, it's not what I'm going to be talking about this morning, but union with Christ is a very critical component of the gospel. If you, re- if you read, for example, Romans 6 and Romans 7, you would see this link that Christians have with the Savior. We are one with him in his death and in his life. And Paul especially makes much of that to show that our union with Christ fuels so much else of what the gospel is about. It's the channel for redemption to take place because we are one with him. That connection with Christ is extremely vital. But my question for you this morning is what is that connection to Christ? Have you examined your heart Scripture says, examine yourselves to see if you are really in the faith. That's what we're going to do this morning. It's not a popular topic, but this week and next week, we're going to differentiate between what looks like faith, but is merely just familiarity with Jesus, and what is true saving faith. 
So I hope that this is a challenge to your heart. And next week, particularly, we'll look at how it applies to us who are believers when we give the gospel out, how it helps set our expectations. But I'd like to give you a few details about the gospel of Mark. I'm going to guess that that's probably the gospel that you're the least familiar with, or maybe the most, because much of Mark's content is included in the other gospels, especially in Matthew and in Luke. In fact, Mark only has a few accounts of Jesus and his life and ministry that aren't found in the other gospels. It's short, it's quick, and perhaps it's easy to skip over. But it's very vital. It gives a perspective of Jesus that's different from the other Gospels. It presents both the humanity of Jesus, his hunger, fatigue, emotions, physical stress, things like that, as in perfect harmony with Jesus' deity as he sees men's thoughts, does many miracles, knows the future, etc. He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. And if you read those first few chapters of Mark, you'd be hit over the head with that. It's very clear. And the identity of Christ, who he really is, what he came there to do. Was he just a carpenter's son? Was he just a great teacher, a great healer? That is critical to understand Mark's message, but more importantly, the gospel itself. Who is Jesus? One commentator says, A person's willingness to surrender himself to Jesus depends on on how he views him. In other words, faith always implies doctrine. And so we're going to test that connection to Christ. Is it true faith in Jesus as the Bible presents him? Or is it merely familiarity with one part of Jesus of Nazareth and failing to grasp who this man is? As I said, Mark's gospel is shorter than the others. It contains very few parables as you read through it. There's a lot of healings, a lot of casting out of demons, of miraculous works, but there's very few parables. So in that, think of it as kind of the mirror image of John's gospel. John presents a few targeted miracles and then great discourses where Jesus teaches his followers. Mark is the opposite. There's only a few discourses where Jesus goes into great depth of teaching, but the, each of the first 11 chapters contains at least one miracle, often more than that. And so Mark tends to be vividly descriptive. He records sometimes even things like the expressions of Jesus and the other disciples. You can tell, as tradition holds, Mark got his information from Peter, who was a first-hand witness. And so as we think, Simon Peter relayed to Mark, this is what I saw. This is what it sounded like. This is what Jesus was doing or thinking or saying at that particular moment. And so this narrative also appears to be the one with the most chronology. So if you read Mark 1 into a few chapters, it's largely chronological. You can't say that with the other gospel writers. They had an organizational structure that sometimes meant taking things out of order. But Mark usually is in order. And so as we start in chapter 1, I want to see kind of an overview there for what we're going to see elsewhere. A familiarity with Christ that knows some things about him, perhaps even embraces some aspects of his ministry, but falls short 
of real saving faith. And so we see first off the crowds. The crowds of people. I'm going to give you three categories of familiarity. It's a very simple outline. If you want to write these down, you can. Next week we'll have a fair, another fairly simple outline. But just three categories of familiarity when that connection with Jesus is less than true saving faith. The first category of familiarity is those who want a temporary escape, a brief euphoria, something to perk them up and get them through the drudgery of their week. They wanted a spectacle. And so we read in verses, first of all, I want to say the first interesting thing is that, as you see, look in verse 23, a man was possessed by an impure spirit. In contrast to the many, many people in Mark who ask, who was this guy? Who, who does he think he is? Where does he get this teaching from? The demons know. And this is not the only reference in Mark where demons confess, Jesus, you are, look in 24, you are Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. Wow, right off the bat, Jesus' ministry when most of his listeners had no clue who he was yet, a demon understood. It's kind of ironic. But we also see in, in chapter 3 and chapter 5, these demons know who Jesus is, even though the people don't. And you could understand their failure. If they knew Jesus at all, they knew him as a carpenter in a little backwater town of Nazareth. And then he starts teaching. Then he starts healing. He starts going all around the region. He starts going outside the region. Crowds start gathering. Chapter 22 says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. There's your difference. Someone who had authority. He, He not only knows God's word, but he's presenting it with authority. He has the power and the right to lay out what God's word says. And the message that Jesus gave people was in verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This was such a change from what they were used to. Try to put yourself in their position. Try to imagine, we don't have it here, praise the Lord. But try to imagine going somewhere to church, to worship, where all you heard was trivialities, dry opinions of men, endless discussions about things that don't even matter. Imagine if you were starving for truth. Some of you have come from churches in the past, or perhaps, sadly, that was true. The people were starving for truth. Their leaders did not give them the word of God. They gave them the opinions of men. But when Jesus spoke, his words were engrossing. They drew you in. They were cohesive. They all fit together. And they drew from the very heart of God. So it's not surprising that these people flocked to hear Jesus. Then they saw great miracles, as Mark lays out for us. Many, many instances of Jesus healing people. Many that are not even recorded in our Bible. Jesus' miracles, especially the healing of the sick and the demon-possessed, they drew such fame that he had to conduct his ministry outside of the towns. 
And verse 28 says, News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Verse 45 says, As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed out in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. People were excited. They were excited to see this new teacher do a great miracle. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that have been thrilling to you? Break up your daily routine. You go on your lunch break to hear the local rabbi that everyone's talking to. He's, he's happened to pass through your town and you see someone healed who was blind from birth. You see someone who was on their deathbed raised up. It would have been exciting. I wish I had been there. But Mark and the other Gospels tell us that what these people wanted was not the truth. They didn't want to repent and become one of Jesus' followers, most of them. They wanted a spectacle. And so, if you see, look in verse 43, Jesus healed someone and sent him away with a strong warning. And this is repeated over and over again. See that you don't tell this to anyone. He would heal someone, he would do a great deed, and he would say, keep it quiet. I'm not interested in causing a spectacle. I'm not interested in being the one that they want to lead a rebellion against Rome. Jesus was saying, I am something different than what you expected. And so these people who perhaps had never known about Jesus or only maybe heard about him because he kind of had that questionable birth. Nobody really knew what was going on there back when he was born. But now he's a local celebrity. Look at verses 3, 7 through 10. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. If we were going to draw this on a map, it's not a local phenomenon anymore. People had heard, word had spread, and they wanted to come from all over, even outside of Israel's borders. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Again, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. But the crowd still didn't understand that. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. The Lord was not interested in notoriety. He wasn't in it for the fame. And he was constantly hushing people up so that they wouldn't become obsessed with him, so that he wouldn't just be a celebrity. So this one category of familiarity, friends, is those who want something transcendent. They want something to feed their souls. They want to feel a connection to the spiritual. They don't know what to make of Jesus, but they're looking into it. Some of you, perhaps, I don't know your faith story. I can't see into your heart. But some of you may feel a kinship with these people who are trying to put the pieces together. And this, this is all new to me. I, I, I haven't heard this before. You've got to give me some time to think about it. We all start from ground zero, just like those who are hearing Jesus teach for the first time. 
So we encourage you, if this is new to you, if you're understanding this and the pieces are starting to come together, take your time. Read God's word. Listen to God's word. But I pray that your connection won't just be because you want a feeling of euphoria. You want something to calm your heart for a few minutes. You want something to pick you up and excite your spirit for a few minutes a week. Jesus is not less than a teacher, than a healer, but he is so much more. And I encourage you to look into this, and I pray that your connection will become one of faith if it is not yet. Our familiarity with Jesus may begin at that simple, understandable ignorance of who he is, but once we discover his claims, once we start to understand his mission, the response of many is to cut away the parts of Jesus that they find objectionable and then try to retain some sort of crumbling skeleton of a man that doesn't look anything like the God-man the gospel presents to us. So the first form of familiarity is an understandable but empty pursuit of something spectacular. Something that the people who hear these faith healers on TV, these prosperity gospel teachers, the people who listen to them, we shouldn't have scorn for them. We should have pity. We should reach out to them and give them the truth. Even if you don't like the message of someone like Joel Osteen, don't let that turn into scorn for those who have maybe have been caught up in a web and they don't understand the truth yet. Let's be compassionate to those who are still looking. But these next two forms of, host- of familiarity can turn out to be openly hostile when Jesus breaks out of the box that they've built for him and starts to, to challenge their way of thinking. So I'd like to next look at the Pharisees. A familiarity that wants to maintain control. It's the second. A familiarity that wants to maintain control. And we see that starting in chapter 2. Jesus enters Capernaum. People heard that he had come home. That's his home region. And so a group of men, a group of friends, lowered their invalid friend down to Jesus. We'll look at that a little bit more. It's a remarkable example of faith. When Jesus saw their faith, in verse 5, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law, and there we're introduced to the main antagonists of the Gospels. Teachers of the law. Sometimes they're called Pharisees. Sometimes they're called Sadducees. They're not the exact same thing, but for the purposes of the Gospel, most of the time, you can say the spiritual leaders of Israel were the ones that Jesus was combating much of the time. And we see what they think here. Why does this fellow talk like that? Verse 7. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They haven't started to challenge him openly, but they're thinking it. Forgive sins? Who do you think you are? And perhaps they would look, think in their minds of passages like Psalm 102, 12 through 13 that talk about how it is God's prerogative to forgive sins. The problem of the Pharisees weren't that they were, it wasn't that they were 100% wrong, it was that they were partly wrong. They understood the scriptures, they thought. They thought they understood righteousness. They made that a priority. They thought they understood holiness. But they didn't understand the heart 
the core of Jesus' message. They were indignant that Jesus had claimed the the authority to forgive sins, but they were so wrong in perceiving that Jesus was, and not perceiving, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And he did have the prerogative to carry the sins of the world. Jesus was both proclaiming and providing forgiveness on the basis of his atonement that was to be coming. When he does heal the paralytic, it almost seems like he's doing it as we continue in, verse, in chapter 2, almost doing it to take a shot at his skeptics. The reaction of the crowd again in verse 12, it amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Boy, don't you think that dug at the Pharisees even more? Don't you think that burned them even more? He's taking the people away from us. They're following this ragamuffin teacher. They're not going to the synagogue. They're not following the rules anymore. I don't even know where this country's going. You ever said that? Look at verses 13 through 28. We won't read all of them, but as Jesus went beside the lake, I'm sorry, not 13, starting in 18, Jesus, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They were following a prescribed schedule of observance, of customs. But some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that the John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus goes on to explain that right now is a key moment in history. The Savior of the world is in your midst. It is not the time to go by yourself and fast. It is the time to listen to my message. And then in verses 23 and following, the Pharisees challenge the disciples. What do you think you're doing? You're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. It wasn't unlawful to pick grain on the Sabbath, to feed yourself. But the Pharisees had established this entire set of traditions outside the levels of, outside the boundaries of Scripture, and they expected everyone to follow our interpretation of the law. The funny thing was, they didn't even agree with their interpretation of the law. And one of the commentators notes that in the Talmud and other writings of that time, these scribes bicker with each other and pick at each other because they can't even agree what the exact interpretations of the law are supposed to be. But it doesn't matter, because we know we're right. We're more right than this commoner. Again, the attitude, who do you think you are not to listen to us? How dare you not abide by our restrictions? How dare you try to teach the people something else? Who are you? I haven't seen you at any rabbinical school. Do you even know Hebrew as well as I do? The contempt of the Pharisees begins to come out. In fact, you can see, first of all, I think it's interesting, questioning in their heads. Then they challenge Jesus' disciples. Then they challenge Jesus directly. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn heart said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. He did it on the Sabbath. Doing good on the Sabbath, isn't that celebrating God's law? Well, that's not how the Pharisees saw it. They wanted everything locked down. (laughs) And verse 6 says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Went from questioning in their minds then indirect challenging, then a direct challenging of Jesus' authority. And finally, they just decide he's too dangerous. 
He's too far gone. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. Let's, go, let's even go in league with the Herodians, who we don't like, in order to get him out off the scene. They were, dis, they were uncomfortable with Jesus. He pulled the rug out from under them. They considered themselves righteous and above contact with the unclean. But Jesus had said in verse 17, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. Verse 17 of chapter 2. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a good theme verse for Jesus' ministry. I've not come to call the righteous, those who consider themselves already set. I've come to call those who know they are sinners, who know they need to repent. It's not very flattering today to compare ourselves to Pharisees. But you have to understand, back then, they were the highest, most respected spiritual leaders in the land. We, that's, a, that's a pejorative term, Pharisee. Who wants to be called a Pharisee? But in some ways, it would be like if a teacher came today, started gathering a following, and the seminary professors, who I respect, I've sat under their teaching. Many of you have too, in our Wednesday night classes and even Sunday morning messages. If the, if the seminary professors categorically rejected this new teacher, and you were convinced that the teacher was right, wouldn't that cause a little bit of turmoil in your heart? A little bit of doubt? Boy, I've always thought that the seminary professors had it right. And, and here they are just standing as one against this new teaching? That was the front that the Pharisees put up against Jesus as he challenged their authority. But we do tend to develop this sort of superiority complex. <clears throat> what about when you get into an exclusive club or you buy a home in a neighborhood that maybe you didn't ever think you'd be able to afford, but all of a sudden you're in a really nice neighborhood. Wow, you're in that club, you're, you're in that group, and you all of, a sudden, all of a sudden start getting concerned about keeping the riffraff out. It doesn't matter that you were the riffraff a month ago. You, you all of a sudden say, wait, wait a second, I think we need to have a community meeting. That house... The grass looks like it hasn't been cut in a couple weeks. You start caring about being exclusive. What about when another adult, perhaps a teacher, starts having a major impact on your child? Doesn't part of your heart get seized with fear? My influence. Where's it going? I mean, it's not that I don't like this guy or this, this lady, but... I don't really think I want them teaching my kid. They want to meet them after school too? I don't, I don't think I like that. We hold on to control whenever we can. That is what the Pharisees were unable, unwilling to give up, is the control that they had amassed through the last few centuries. They wanted to be the ones that people came to. Now, Jesus' message of righteousness and the kingdom, they knew that. They had read the promises of God in the Old Testament, but he challenged their authority. So if you find yourself thinking that you're not really as bad as most people, that you have enough self-discipline or intelligence or work ethic 
to succeed, and you start looking down at others saying, well, okay, that's fine if you, if you want to go all out on this whole religion thing, but I think I've got it covered. You know, I know Jesus said he came to call the sinners, and there's plenty of sinners. I see them all around me, but that doesn't really include me. I don't do the things that other people do. I pay my taxes. Um, I'm the one who has never gone on government support ever. I'm the one who has always been at church. On Sunday morning, Sunday night, any service, don't tell me I don't have faith. It's possible that that's a connection of familiarity with the Bible, but utter lack of faith in Jesus, the Son of God. But I think the most shocking familiarity, lack of faith in the whole of Mark's narrative is as we continue in chapter 3. His family, his friends. This is a familiarity that breeds contempt. You have a familiarity that is unsure, that is ignorant of the gospel, that just wants a spectacle. You have a familiarity that likes some aspects of the gospel, that likes the righteousness, that likes the rules, but wants to maintain control and shuts out their heart to the gospel. And then you have a familiarity that breeds contempt. A familiarity where we've heard it all before. We know all this. Jesus is not that special to us anymore because we've grown up our whole lives hearing about him. And that familiarity breeds contempt. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered, normal by this point, right? So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, and I have to take a note, it means literally those from his side. Probably his family. It could include friends as well, friends that he grew up with. I think the, the important thing is these were people who knew and cared about Jesus. They went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And then we go on to the, to the, the teachers of the law challenging Jesus and actually calling him demon-possessed. That's how far they'd gone in their unbelief. But these were people who were cared about Jesus, and they were questioning his sanity. It, it maybe just means that they thought Jesus had gone a little too far with this whole teacher bit. Okay, Jesus, you are a good teacher. We've always respected you. You've always been you know, an upright person. But you know what? You're not even eating now. You're going to you know, parts of Israel that I wouldn't feel comfortable going. You're going to the rich neighborhoods in Judea. Uh, you're going to the really, really poor areas of Galilee. Uh, you know, Jesus, I think you might be going a little too far with this whole ministry. Why don't you, why don't you knock, back it down a couple steps here? We know at the very least that John 7, 5 says even his own brothers did not believe him. So there was a period, perhaps the majority or all of Jesus' public ministry, where his friends, his family members, those who knew him, didn't know him. If you catch my drift. They did not see the, the flourishing, the beginning of Jesus' ministry as something to celebrate. Finally! Jesus is showing everybody that he is the Messiah. They saw it as something embarrassing, 
something that brought shame on their town, on their family. As we continue in chapter 3, look at 31. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside that crowded house, they sent someone in to call him. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but doesn't that seem odd? You're concerned about this individual, you love this individual, but you're not even willing to use your elbows and get through the crowd. Um, hey, boy, you know Jesus? Oh, of course. We're his mother and his brothers. He's going to listen to us. Go tell him to come in to get himself out here. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I think he's gotten a little too stressed out. And it just amazes me that those who would have seen the perfect character of Jesus, now no, he wasn't doing miracles for the first 30 years of his life, but he was sinless. Don't you think that would stand out if you knew someone who was utterly without sin? They never responded in anger. They never were selfish. They never cheated you at the market. Everything was done perfectly. He lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. But these who were familiar with Jesus, who were his close associates and friends and family, went over their heads. They were blind to what was right in front of them. I, I think Mary should have known better, but it had been 30 years since the angel appeared to her and told her what Jesus' mission was going to be. Perhaps she convinced herself that it was never going to happen or that she wouldn't live to see it. People marvel at Jesus and flock to wherever he is. Then you see that reversed. His family, they don't marvel at him. They tell him to come to them. Disrespect. Then look at chapter 6, 1 through 6. While you turn over there, don't you see this accommodating wink and nod so much when someone gets religion? The friends and family say, okay, we've seen you go through phases before. We've seen you go off on this tangent or that tangent. This is just going to be one more. All right, that's fine, but you don't really need to go to every service. That's fine, you know, but, but just, just make sure you don't burn out. No, don't give them any money, you know. That's the attitude these people had towards the Savior's ministry. And then look at chapter 6, 1 through 6. Jesus left there, and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. So a few months later, we assume, he returns to the region. He returns to those to, to give his message to them again. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. I'll stop there. Mark doesn't give the content of Jesus' message, but we see from Luke 4 how Jesus was relaying the text of Isaiah and saying, now is the time. I am the one who will set the oppressed free. What a great, encouraging message. But not to them. And Mark records six rapid-fire questions. If you look in verse 3 and 4. I'm sorry, just 2 and 3. Where did this man get these things? 
What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? So you see, the first three questions, they challenge, where did you get your power and authority? Yeah, you've been going all around the, the countryside at the, be, at the behest of anybody who wanted to be healed. You've been in all these parts of the, of the, of the land, but where did you get your authority? Because the, the Jesus we know, he wouldn't have these delusions of grandeur. He wouldn't have been able to do these great things. So, so where are you getting your authority? We want to know because we don't trust that this is from you. We don't trust that this is really Jesus. And then the next three questions, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? We don't really know much else about Jesus' sisters, but apparently God had blessed Mary with a fairly large family after Jesus was the firstborn. So you have these younger people, maybe they're still teenagers, in their 20s, living at home with Mary. We know who you are, Jesus. We have heard all about you. (laughs) We grew up with you. I remember when you were this high. I remember when you ran off from your parents that one time, you know, at, at the temple. We know who you are. And this is not you. Friends, if you don't think this is you, then ask yourself this question. How familiar with Jesus have I become? Do I think about who he is? Do I think about what he's done? Does that drive me to my knees in worship, in praise? Or do I take it for granted? Luke actually gives the shocking end of the story. It says Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. But actually, as we find out, I thought a phone was going off. As we find out, these people became so riled up at Jesus' presentation of the truth that Luke 4 records how they tried to take him out of town and stone him. Can you believe that? The ones who knew him, who'd seen his perfect character of life, had grown such resentment at his recent prominence that they wanted him off the scene just like the Pharisees. They'd gotten to that point in the hardness of their hearts. It didn't matter the miracles that he did. And as we find out, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. They'd cold-heartedly rejected him. They'd rationalized away the evidences of God's power. They'd convinced themselves, you know what? We can accept you as one of us. We can accept you as, you know, just an elevated Galilean. But you start getting these uppity notions, you start presuming to say that you're better than us, yeah, we're not going to accept that. Familiar with Jesus, we may very well be, especially as Christmas draws near. It always, always in an ironic way, I find it funny. 
people who have no interest in Jesus, who have nothing resembling faith or devotion to him, will sing a song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing with that incredible phrase, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Thank you, Clay Aiken, but I don't know if you really believe that. Hail the incarnate deity. People who can be so over-familiar with Jesus, especially in our culture with its Christian heritage. They might give some money to a Christian charity. They might might make their thrice annual pilgrimage to a local church because you can't forget Easter and, and Mother's Day too, right? And they think they've done enough. I'm familiar with Jesus. Yeah, he was the one who was born and, you know, son of God and all that. Yeah, that's, I believe that. That's good. I'm good with that. But when asked to sacrifice for the Lord, to lay aside one of their notions and accept the biblical alternative, they can't. They won't. The sad thing is they're just comfortable enough with the Bible to cut out the parts they don't like. That's the common thread through all of these strings of familiarity, these strains. Some may be thrilled by the spectacular nature of it, but they don't want to accept the claims that Jesus has over their life. Some may like the righteousness. They're familiar with those themes. They like to be self-disciplined and consider themselves a righteous person. But when Jesus says, you are a sinner, you need to repent, they bristle. Really? You think that's me? And then the third category, some may become so familiar with Jesus that it actually leads to a contempt Yeah, I I grew up in Christian school, kindergarten through 12th. I I heard all of that, okay? it It doesn't even phase me anymore. No matter what aspect of this familiarity you might be holding on to, the fact is, it's not faith. But I do want to tell you there is hope. From those crowd of gawkers, we know that many of them did actually come to have faith in Jesus. From those spiritual leaders of the land, we know that people like Paul, Joseph of Arimathea, possibly Nicodemus as well, came to faith eventually. And among Jesus' relatives, James, the brother of Jesus, became a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He wrote one of our epistles in the New Testament. So there is hope, friends, Whether you're looking to Jesus and seeing someone who can give you a a, a thrill for a few minutes a week, whether you're looking at him and saying, well, I'm going to cut away the parts of his message I don't like and just leave the rules, the the righteousness, I can do that. Or whether you're looking at him and saying, you know what, it doesn't even even matter. I know who he is, but I'm not going to follow him with my whole heart. He hasn't earned that. Friends, there is hope in the message of the gospel. I don't know where all of you are. Next week, we'll talk more about faith and about how we can grow in our faith, how we can observe faith in others, how we can give the gospel out, what expectations we should have then. I'll close this morning with a quote from R. Kent Hughes. He says, even if you are a Christian, even if you are a Christian, there is a danger of familiarity dulling us 
to the deep spiritual demands of our faith. The sacred words which so easily get tossed around in Christians' conversations can render holy mysteries banal. This desensitizes us to the personal demands of God. Oh, I know that. It's not so great. It's every day. It is not. Christ, our life, is an ongoing miracle. And I hope that your connection with him today is union, that your life is hid with Christ. And you're not counting on your own righteousness to fill that void. Let's pray. Lord and Father, thank you for the kind attention of those here. And thank you for the unique gospel of Mark. I pray that we would, uh, Lord, wholeheartedly accept your message of redemption understanding that we cannot do it ourselves. We can only cling to the cross and turn in faith and repentance to the one that you have provided for us. And I pray in that Savior's name, amen.